God in Christ, perplexed but not given to despair, persecuted but not, not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. In the second letter of Paul to Corinthians, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This past week, I've been reading a wonderful novelization of the life of St. Helen, written by the Catholic novelist Evelyn Law. Helen was the Emperor Constantine's mother during the late, uh, late 3rd century, early 4th century. A woman of English extraction who lived during that time in which Christianity was becoming legal in the Roman Empire. In, the Roman Empire. in that book, entitled simply Helena, she has a conversation with an old teacher who has become Christian. And Helena asks if it will be that Christians openly practice and openly worship their God alongside the long-standing Roman cults of Jupiter or Isis or Venus. And the teacher says, Christianity is not that sort of religion, man. It cannot share anything with anybody. Whenever it is free, it will conquer. And she says, well, perhaps that was the point of persecutions. He says, the blood of ours is the seed of the church. She responds, you get it both ways then. Both ways, we have that promise, man. It is a strange thing. We Christians flourish at both ends of the spectrum. When persecuted, the church grows. When given great freedom, the church conquers. For a people who hang between the cross and resurrection, though, perhaps it isn't that strange at all. When Christians die to every bit of pride, every bit of entitlement, when we carry in our bodies, as Paul says it, the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies, the gospel becomes manifest. And when congregations are stripped, and when they die of every bit of pride, every bit of entitlement, and when congregations of Christians carry in their bodies the death of Jesus, the gospel becomes manifest. In the American church, we have become all too used to mediocrity. We can exercise religious freedom just so long as it doesn't bother anyone else, or so long as we keep our religious convictions to ourselves and out of the public square. At the same time, we're not good at dealing with a lack of success. I would venture to say that most congregations in the United States today are in serious decline. They have not seen any growth at all since the 1970s. And all of this causes a kind of despair. After all, we are Americans. We have no tolerance for weakness, no tolerance for decline. At Christ Church, we've seen the opposite. In four years, we've seen our attendance and membership grow by depending on the figures which I use on any given day, 700 to 800%. Well, that's astounding and not normal. This parish is marked by the great freedom of the gospel to proclaim what we proclaim and to be what the Lord has called us to be. In a time when many Christians indeed most, and many churches indeed most, are marked by a crippling fear of relevance, of acceptability, we have gained. In a time when many congregations in Waco simply want to coexist with the dominant trends of the American religious and political landscape, we have resisted taking our piece of pie and going home. We face a significant question this morning. Do we let the gates of hell prevail against our assault and go home? Or do we not rest, not give up, until every knee shall bow and every tongue confess? 
Do we rest satisfied that our light shines in the darkness just enough to be seen? Or do we strive to see the knowledge of the glory of God be set forth in the face of Jesus who goes before us proclaiming him and him crucified as servants in the midst of a dark and unbelieving world? What I want to do this morning so that there can be no question about where I line up on it is to just lay out what Paul's position is on the matter and I shall make it mine. What I will say to you is the reason for the church's triumph nearly three centuries later through rocky, the rocket points brought about the greatest spiritual period of flourishing of the church's life which has ever been seen and from which, and from which we are on the downward slope today. If you have a Bible with you, I'd like you to open to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In this letter to the Corinthian church, Paul is admonishing the Corinthian church to take seriously their calling as Christians in the disbelieving world. As those who go to Christ in his ways, they are participants in a triumphant procession through the world proclaiming Christ's victory. Listen to what he says at the end of chapter 2. He says, Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing, to one, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things, he asked. The sincere proclamation of the gospel is a powerful aroma in this world. It does not blend in. It does not smell like anything else. And Paul imagines this triumphal procession smelling up the streets of a city like Rome, going through in triumph and victory. Paul's position is that the glory of this proclamation is that it surpasses all that came before in the Old Covenant, all that has come before in the Roman Empire, and it is a mystery of, that a mystery of condemnation has been surpassed by the ministry of righteousness. Paul is looking at the glory of the law, that the glory of Moses' face veiled as he came down from Mount Sinai and saying that through Christ the veil has been taken away. Finally, saying at the end of chapter 3, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The message thus far is this. The church's calling is to proclaim new life, freedom bought by Jesus Christ and made manifest to the church and through her to the world by the Holy Spirit. This is a message of righteousness, a message of fulfillment, specifically of the law. This morning we read the Ten Commandments and reading along with Paul, we should say, thanks be to God who has given us grace to keep them. Thanks be to God who has by His Spirit inclined our hearts towards righteousness. Thanks be to God who allows us to carry the death of Jesus in our bodies so that we might truly live as He wills. Some of you might have thought, oh, what a sinner am I. Well, good, move to the next part. That God doesn't want you to remain that way. We read this morning from the Gospel of Mark as well. Jesus is instructing His disciples to eat the grain on the Sabbath. Well, why? Because he's Lord of the Sabbath and Lord of the law. He has power and authority to interpret the law because he is the one through whom it was given. Those ancient Christians believed, and we believe today, that we have been given 
great grace to keep the Lord's commandments because we carry his presence with us into this world. And so Paul's charge begins in chapter 4 of the Corinthian church. Therefore, having this ministry, he says, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced grace, disgracefulness, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul looks at the persecutions he faces, and rather than being filled with despair of the landscape, he does not lose heart. And some of you all know, came here this Sunday morning losing heart in the midst of the battle. The reason Paul did not lose heart is that he believes that the victory has already been determined. That Christ has been given triumph in this world, and it is only a matter of time before all will Assured of this victory, duplicity and cunning have no place. There is no reason to deceive, no reason to tamper with the Word of God, no reason to tamper with divine revelation. If you firmly believe that in the end the gospel will prevail, you will not escalate. Paul, therefore, does not engage in cheap tricks or gimmicks with his hearers. He does not engage in attempting to make the truth of the gospel more palatable to his hearers. Instead, he openly states the truth, openly engaging the conscience of his hearers, meaning he is calling them to consider their conduct in the light of the gospel and to come to the Lord's grace. He continues. And even if our gospel is veiled, meaning even if there are those who cannot hear it, for some odd reason, it is veiled because those it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world will find the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You might ask this question this morning. Why are there some who simply refuse to believe? Why are there some who refuse to see the truth? And the reason Paul gives is that the God of this world is veiled their they are tempted away. There's actually a great deal more to this, and Paul continues it, and it becomes clearer. He says, For what, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If it were the case that well-reasoned preaching and clear proclamation alone won men and women to the truth of the gospel, Christ's church would be about ten people. Because yours truly would be preaching Sunday after Sunday, and it would be worthless. For Paul, it would mean that revolutions could by their own power bring about conversions. But Paul, one of the great revolutions of all time, said he didn't have very good words to say. He knew this to be false. Conversion is the work of God, not preaching. So all the more reason to proclaim the gospel without faith. All the more reason to proclaim the truth of the faith clearly. Let God work on illuminating the hearts of the hearers. We saw this on Pentecost Sunday, didn't we? Peter's sermon was basically like, you know, you killed Jesus, congratulations. People are cut to the heart. His words are true words. 
Holy Spirit who's convicting you, the Holy Spirit who's drawing you to faith. The apostolic preaching was accompanied by the great work of God in cutting to the heart of the Hebrews. Paul continues on. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal body, in our mortal flesh. So death is working us but life in you. There has been much debate about this, but here I think Paul is bringing a double meaning to the table. This use of this treasure in jars of clay, what does it mean? I think it's two things. He's both pointing to the text in the scrolls, kept in clay jars, which he probably has with him, the great treasure of the Word of God, and at the same time pointing to the human body of the Christian as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Either way, the point is the same. The surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul sees this word of God going forth into the whole world and he knows the power of those texts which he brings with him. He knows the power of God's revelation to his people. He also knows the power of the presence of Christ going forth with him into the whole world. We're engaged in this ongoing, long thing with the Anglican Communion, and at the very center of this is. At the very center of this is. It's a question of does the power belong in the charts of play in those texts, or does the power belong in us? Does the power belong in the living persons of Christ in his church, or does the power belong in us? I know what the answer is to that. I'm asking you. There's a temptation to look around. All of us would say, look what we've done. I mean, look how magnificent this is. Do you not see? 17,000 square feet for under $400,000. Boom. Done. It's incredible. Yeah, it's not perfect. We're good there. We could look all around us and say, my goodness, we've accomplished a lot. And I don't want to revoke anybody's accomplishment. It's an incredible accomplishment. But to think only that would be a tragedy. The truth is something quite different. We've seen the power of the gospel. We've seen the power of faith. We've seen the power of God over and over and over again. And it's not going to stop so long as we let it. If you look at your life, you look at your house, you look at your car, and all you can recount are all your wonderful deeds you'll be given over to despair. When persecuted, you'll wonder why the church, why the world doesn't love you. And you'll be angry that she doesn't. When forsaken, you'll wonder why your friends turned on you. You'll wonder, am I not lovable? When struck down, you'll wonder if God himself loves you. When a church is persecuted and they think that it's all their wonderful deeds that matter, They'll simply ask, why doesn't everyone think we're so wonderful? 
When a church is forsaken, they'll wonder why all the people who used to be their friends are no longer their friends. But if you and I believe, and if our church believes, that the power belongs to God when we're persecuted, we'll give thanks to our very debts. Thanks to God for the power of Jesus Christ to turn, to turn great suffering into great good. And if we're forsaken, we'll find solidarity with Jesus who was alone on the cross. And if we're struck down in that too, we'll know the love of God for sinners. If we believe in the power of God, and if we believe that we can have a good, full life, full of great blessing, if we believe in the power of God and we believe we can have nice church buildings that are perfectly set up with great stained glass windows and all the rest and beautiful organs, then we can sleep well knowing it could all be taken away. And we won't lose the thing we hold most dear, the word of God in the presence of Jesus with us. Thanks be to God for that, because we'll never lose it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>